0: Here's a Japanese on with a Just an
1: old
0: Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dalwood and I'm Max Anderson. And in today's episode we're gonna be looking at cosmic horror. Before we get into all that horrific stuff, however,
1: what is going on?
2: I hear there's change in the air, change in Patreon particularly. Yes, indeed. We've
0: updated our Patreon reward levels, so the easiest thing to do is to take a look at www.patreon.com slash goodfriends of Jackson Elias. And further to that, we've got issue seven of the Blasphemous Tome coming out in June. Yeah, so what's happened is we've
1: changed how we're doing the Blasphemous Tome. So we started a few years back doing these 0.5 PDF releases during the summer, but what we're now doing is we're putting out two tomes a year. So this is going to be issue 7, not issue 6.5. It's going to be a proper tome. And check out the details in Patreon. But depending on the level you back us at, you will get a PDF of it. You will get a print-on-demand copy. Or you will get a copy printed by us at Paul's local printer in Buckingham and signed
0: by us. The fanzine is licensed by Chaosium and the next issue as i said issue seven is going to feature a brand new scenario by mr matthew sanderson
2: ah yes (laughs) (laughs) you sound surprised Matt. spot spot the cry of the author who hasn't started writing it yet but has an idea (laughs) so watch this space for more thoughts for me
0: there's time there's time and there's also time for listeners who might be interested in making a submission of either art or an article of up to around 500 words for the tome and the deadline for that is the end of april 2021 if you've got an idea for artwork
1: or an article you'd like to send us, please contact us via social media. we've got links on blasmustomes.com all over the place. Alternatively, send us an email at submissions at And now
0: on to our main topic, cosmic horror. So cosmic
1: horror really lies at the heart of Lovecraft's work and, by extension, Call of Cthulhu. But what is it? How do we define it? Where did it come from? And how do we actually bring this sense of the cosmic into our games?
0: Well, I guess to start off with, yeah, what is it? How do we define it?
1: There are as many definitions of cosmic horror as there are people trying to define it. So I think it might be interesting if each of us offers our own idiosyncratic definition of what cosmic horror is.
2: Do you want to start, Matt? I was having a think about this, because slight foreshadowing for one of the later sections that we'll be discussing, talking about some of our favourite stories of cosmic horror. I was trying to rack my brain thinking, well, what stories do fit into this definition? And the one story I finally settled on, online it seems to be classified more just as science fiction rather than even horror, which I think there's a valid argument for. The way I've personally looked at it is that it's horror from outside well at least the impetus for that horror is something that has come from outside what we would consider normality whether it be from another dimension whether it be from space whether it be from just some other weird place it's something very ostensibly other and weird and something that very much is almost playing by a different set of rules than normal characters or normal rules of fiction that we see that it very much is that kind of weird other aspect that comes across to me in this.
0: How about you, Paul? Yeah, I think it can be partly be defined in what it's not. So it's not just alien monsters. Hmm. If we look at the film Alien, I don't think that's cosmic horror necessarily because it's an alien. Yeah, it's pretty unkillable, but it's not totally unkillable. It's just an alien race. And I don't think alien races necessarily define cosmic horror. In fact, I wonder if one can have cosmic horror without any science fiction. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Or any fiction at all. To sum it up, I'd like to make a brief quote. Space is big, really (laughs) big. You just won't believe how vastly, hugely, mind-bogglingly big it is. I mean, you may think it's a long way down the road to the chemist, but that's just peanuts to space to quote Douglas Adams, of course. So I think whilst his was a work of humour, he did sort of pick up on that humans against the vast cosmos. So I think cosmic horror is about realising your place because humanity, well, we've conquered everything, haven't we? We've pretty much explored everywhere in the world. There's a few bits of like the deep ocean or whatever that we haven't gone to. But we've been pretty much everywhere else. Any any animal, any other species, you know, we can kill it. We do regularly. We pretty much could say we've kind of conquered everything. And we've conquered space. We've been to the moon. Only this, like, (laughs) about a week ago, we landed a, a probe, a thing on Mars. I mean, what more do you want? But then, if you pull back a bit (laughs) (laughs) yes you know obviously we've all seen these illustrations of where you know you pull back a bit and there's the solar system and that's huge we've only been to like a tiny tiny bit of it and then you pull back a bit more and there's like the whole of the milky way and you're like bloody hell that's just mind-blowing and then you pull back a bit more and there's the whole universe and the milky way is just like a little tiny dot and you're like oh my god so on one hand we think oh humanity We're the kings. We've got it all sorted. On the other hand, we're like a kid in his backyard. Well, less than a kid in his backyard because the backyard compared to the whole earth is much bigger than earth compared to the whole of the universe. To some degree, it's a question of scale. Mm. That's to do with space, but also to do with time. You know, time. What year is it? It's 2021. Okay. Well, you know, human, let's say we might live 100 years if we're lucky well, that's 100 years out of 2,000 years. That's a reasonable chunk. That's like a 100 pages out of a 2,000-page book. That's a chapter, let's say, isn't it? What if we didn't have this calendar based on Christianity? What if we were in the year 4.5 billion 2021? <laughs> then our little 100 years, well, it's not even a page in the book, is it? It's just like we made everything very humanocentric, One could argue that's in part to fend off the cosmic horror of reality. I haven't even touched on fiction there. I think there's enough in real life Mm -hmm. (laughs) of the cosmos to have that disturbing sense of loss of significance
2: in the face of
0: the cosmos.
2: I was thinking on when you mentioned about that kind of pullback effect, was thinking of one of my favourite couch gags from The Simpsons. Uh They all run to the sofa and then it zooms out and it's the sofa, then the room, then the country, then the planet. It zooms past Kang and Kodos, broken down with their spaceship. keeps going out and out and out and out and out and then reappears coming out of the cell out of Homer's bald head. Brilliant.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I'd agree with everything Paul just said there, but I'd say that there is another part to it as well that is to do with humanity's reaction or our own personal reaction to this. There are a few different ways this can go. And I think when faced with something that is incomprehensibly vast, something that is so beyond human scale, there are a number of reactions that are invoked in people. One is this sense of awe This is a word, particularly in the term awesome, that gets misused a lot these days. But it is this sense of almost religious reverence at something that is beyond our comprehension. And this seems to be something that's almost inbuilt into us. I mean, it could almost be seen as a coping mechanism for the cosmic. Or maybe it's something deeper than that. I don't know. But at the same time, you have the flip side of it, which is this existential horror I guess if you feel that humanity is meant to be important somehow, I mean, for a long time we considered the Earth to be the centre of the solar system and us to be the centre of creation, looking at our own insignificance is terrifying. And I think that there is this reaction that is exaggerated in uh, weird fiction, particularly Lovecraft and Lovecraftian fiction, where this drives people to madness. In the article I wrote for Trebuchet magazine a while back about Lovecraftian horror, I likened it to a term from computer science, or computing in general, which is buffer overflow. So the idea of a buffer overflow is that if in certain programming languages you're receiving input from an outside source into your program, you have to set aside a bit of memory for this input to go into. If you're a decent programmer, you put in all sorts of safeguards and say that if it's not the right size, you reject it or do something with it. But a very common mistake is not to sanitize that input so that if, say, you've set aside a chunk of memory to get a file that's come in and someone sends a file that's a hundred times the size you're expecting, then it explodes beyond the bounds of what you've got set aside and starts writing into other parts of the computer's memory. And this can corrupt the code that's there. It can force the computer to execute instructions that it wasn't expecting. It can just make it crash or blue screen or whatever. And to me, cosmic horror is when that happens to the human brain. We've got this bit of our mind that is set aside for processing the world, for processing the sensory input we receive. And then suddenly something comes along that just makes our brains blue screen.
2: Normally around January when I have to do my self-assessment. <laughs> <laughs> Where Paul says, we've kind of conquered everything, we've gone everywhere, we've mastered what we can. And then Scott saying about the illimitable void, this awesome scale of the central universe i still feel we have yet to conquer the unfathomable depths of human stupidity that's a deep well indeed so we've talked a bit about how
0: we personally conceive of cosmic horror this is often tied up with and when you search what is cosmic horror Yeah, it does come back with a synonym for Lovecraftian horror. Yeah. Is there a differentiation to be made? Are they the same thing?
2: I think that Lovecraft popularised it, that it had been around before then, as we may explore on a further episode, hint, hint. It more came to the fore because of Lovecraft, because he was the first one to really popularise it, that it's then almost become, as you say, synonymous with him. But I think that they are two very different beasts, or that Lovecraftian horror is a type of cosmic horror.
1: Well, I think there's a subset of Lovecraftian horror which is cosmic horror. Lovecraft wrote about a whole bunch of other stuff as well. There's all his Dunsanian stuff, there's his early Poe-inspired stuff. So I think just taking the mythos work, the sort of core mythos work, then a lot of that is cosmic horror. But I think there are elements in there that people conflate with cosmic horror, like big tentacle monsters and stuff like that, which aren't cosmic horror, really. Sure, there's a lot about Cthulhu as an entity that ties in with the larger ideas of cosmic horror and entities that are beyond our imagining and so on. But when it comes down to the way people, I think, use him, there's very little of the cosmic about that, that he might as well just be Godzilla with
2: tentacles. You mean he's not?
0: Yeah, so there are various themes that Lovecraft kind of weaves together, like threads that he weaves together, one of which is cosmic horror, right? And he repackages it for the audience, and that's where most people kind of get their cosmic horror concept from, I suppose. But like you say, it's interwoven with lots of other things. So like The Rats in the Walls, the Lovecraft story that we explored in an earlier episode, I don't really think of that as cosmic horror. It goes down kind of into a subterranean realm under the Earth, so it's kind of almost turning inward I suppose you can still touch on cosmic horror, but I don't think of it as a definitive cosmic horror story. Hmm. So, yeah, so he weaves together quite a lot of threads. But I guess what we can try and do is kind of unpick some of those Hmm. threads and try and sort of identify which ones are cosmic horror. And even with cosmic horror, there are probably various threads that sort of weave together various themes within cosmic horror that we could kind of try and pull apart. One connection I was wondering about,
1: though and maybe there are some academics out there or scholars who can provide a definitive answer, is whether Lovecraft actually coined the phrase cosmic horror because the first references to it I can see or manage to find were in supernatural horror and literature. And he makes a lot of references throughout that to cosmic horror, cosmic terror, cosmic mystery, and attempts even at some points to define it there. For example, he looks at some of the works of people like Yeats as being cosmic horror and looks at Celtic myths and folklore and stuff like that as having elements of the cosmic, which is something that we may not necessarily think of. So, yeah, I mean, if there are any scholars out there who've looked into this more than we humble podcasters have, I'd be really interested in hearing from you. hmm So one criticism I've seen of Lovecraft in general, which really seems to tie in with this whole idea of cosmic horror, is whether it's very much a product of the time in which he was writing when say, big scientific ideas about the universe and space and time were relatively new to people's minds and there was still a lot more perhaps religious interpretation of the world or much more traditional interpretation. People looked inward more. Yeah, I think we are possibly heading back to those times now. But whether cosmic horror is very much a product of those views that now we might be more inured to some of those elements
2: i think going back to what paul mentioned earlier using that example of the landing on mars is quite topical and feeds into this there are times when suddenly we think oh yeah everything's going to set in stone it's not going to change we know the confines of the canvas of our existence and the world but then something like this pops up and it's oh great we've extended a bit further we've gone out to mars then it's putting something like that in perspective you zoom out and you see the scale of the solar system and the like, going back a few years to the Quatermass experiment, hmm. where they were saying about the moonshot that had gone more than twice the distance out into space than it is from here to the moon, and really making that a big deal. And that even then, just by floating out in the void, they encountered something horrible and brought it back with them. And that wasn't that long ago in the grand scheme of things when that that story was written. So, no, I think it's hmm. anything that comes along and kind of shakes up our perspective can then be turned on its head and show how, oh, you think that's big, you wait till you see this. I think whenever those moments come up, which they happen all the time, is any fertile time to bring cosmic horror into society?
0: Yeah, I think it's probably to do with the way that it's presented. So if you're looking at something that was written decades ago, you know whether it's Lovecraft's time or whether it's in the 60s, 1960s, then it's going to suffer some degree you know fashions are going to have changed and we're going to digest it differently so i think every horror can be reinvented for the modern audience and i think Mm. if cosmic horror is reinvented for the modern audience then it's probably just as disturbing because i think we are just as disturbed by it if it can be communicated effectively this is something that a phrase that was put around when we were working on call of cthulhu it's that moment when there's a revelation, whatever it may be, and the players kind of say, What the fuck? <laughs> it's that moment of having the rug pulled out from under you yeah and that's not necessarily a cosmic horror thing but i think cosmic horror if done right always does that it always does that what the fuck moment yeah of just your jaw dropping open and your brain you know like the buffer overload thing you said about scott your brain just struggling to comprehend it so i think it's not about the unknown it's about the unknowable and that you can't comprehend it if you can comprehend it and it all makes sense then i don't think it's cosmic horror
2: i live for those moments in games
0: i think that's
1: a big part of it but i think there's also this element of the shock of the new this may be something we get into a bit more as the episode goes on but i think that it becomes very easy for what is shocking to become stale. So the revelations about science that were coming out in Lovecraft's time that perhaps did shock people that informed a lot of his work now seem very commonplace today. So they don't necessarily have the same emotional impact upon us. What are you thinking of? I'm thinking in terms of relativity, quantum physics, a lot of the astronomical discoveries that were being made at the time, a lot of the archaeological discoveries and the research into things like tectonic plates and the age of the Earth and stuff like that, all the stuff that makes us feel insignificant by looking at the scope of time and space.
2: I was just thinking along the lines of, hey, I've got a car that can go 30 miles an hour. Well, they won't get any faster than that.
1: (laughs) But, I mean, a lot of these things, at the same time as perhaps religious and shared philosophical norms were breaking down a bit and people were being exposed to new ideas culturally, that it was a time where it just seemed to be this sort of constant assault on traditional values and beliefs and the shock of the new over and over again, this modernist era that Lovecraft railed against. I think this is all part of the same shock. That was 100 years ago. It's not shocking to us in the same way now. This is part of the fabric of the world that we grew up in. But as you say, Paul, I think there are always new things that come along to shock us. But I don't know. For me, I see less of that happening on a cosmic
0: scale and more happening on a human one now. You know, taking quantum mechanics, for example. Yeah, we've kind of all heard about it and we've kind of read a little thing about it and kind of feel like, oh, yeah, we've kind of put that into a box in our head where we go, oh yeah, kind of understand what that is. We know that's quantum mechanics, quantum physics or whatever. But then when you do actually kind of look at it, you still get that sensation of what? Hmm. You know, it's like, yeah, you kind of put it in a box and compartmentalized it i think and put it on the shelf if somebody gets that box down and takes the lid off and shows it to us again what's dark matter i mean apparently it's like 85 percent of the universe physicists aren't even sure if it's actually a thing they, they haven't actually physically observed it i so i understand i don't really know anything about physics but you know if it accounts for 85 percent of the universe and we don't really understand it there's a lot there that is unexplained i would assume yeah so There's a lot of these things, terms that we are accustomed to hearing. But when you actually stop to consider, I suppose it's a bit like religion. You know, we've all heard of God and Jesus and and resurrection and and all these terms. And we sort of think, oh, yeah, well, we've heard about that. But then if you actually stop and consider
2: them, it's like, what? I thought Dr. West did a particularly good job of conveying what resurrection meant.
1: Well, indeed. Uh, Based on that, then... Can cosmic horror, that sense of cosmic horror, survive familiarity? And I'm thinking particularly in terms of Lovecraft and Lovecraftian horror. So let's take a classic example. One of the big cosmic ideas in Lovecraft is Azathoth. So you have this seething blasphemy at the center of the universe that may or may not have created everything We may or may not be his dream. He has this quarter, these dancing pipers that orbit around him. You might be able to travel there through dreams or through cosmic means or whatever. And this is a big, shocking idea. Now, in Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, Lovecraft goes through this explains it and shows it to us like five times in the same fucking story. And by the end of it, it's, yeah, okay, yeah, as a thoth again. If you're using that, for example, in a game, it's, you know, it's now... Well, certainly for people who are familiar with Lovecraftian fiction and Call of Cthulhu, I don't think that's an idea you could make shocking anymore. You could bring much cosmic horror out of because we know the names. We know that, oh, yeah, that's Azathoth. This is his court. These are his dancing pipers. We know what some of the rules are. We know where it all fits in. It's part of our taxonomy. It's not the unknown anymore. So... The other familiarity there has killed the cosmic horror of it. How do we stop that happening?
2: Are you suggesting that we've potentially lost the most Sam we can possibly lose to it and that we've all, as players, <laughs> become mythos-hardened? No. <laughs> it's something that I think, that going in, putting it in game terms, I think the mythos-hardened mechanic does convey that for smaller creatures, but I think that, going back to your, your overflow analogy, at some point there's going to be too much for that, to handle that there is always going to be that bigger fish that can kind of swallow you whole seeing a deep one can definitely rackle you for a bit you see a thousand deep ones "Ah, it's another fish man quick plug it between the eyes but then you get to something that is that big i think there's got to be a point where we're just so insignificant that it there's nothing you can do in the face of it but as readers when we're not confined by game Mm. mechanics like that then i think you make a very valid point that it's familiarity as soon as you know what to expect, that you've seen it done 100,000 times. It's the kind of same thing I've expressed before with violence and slasher films and things like that, that, oh, how many times can you see someone get butchered with a knife and stabbed to death? That it just becomes numbing, that you've seen it too many times, the impact goes away, and that it needs to be something that's fresh or put into a different context to make it have more of an impact again. I think there is a risk of familiarity, to be honest. Yeah, I think you
0: become accustomed to a sensation, don't you? Mm. I'd liken it to getting into a sports car. If you get into a sports car and your buddy's driving and you're sat stationary and they put their foot down and they accelerate away and you're thrown back into your seat and you can barely move and you feel this rush of acceleration, suddenly you're travelling at 100 miles an hour, that's like bloody hell. But then, oh, we're still travelling at 100 miles an hour. I mean, it's still like pretty amazing, but I'm not feeling that sensation of acceleration anymore. So I'd liken that to the sense of wonder at the revelations of cosmic horror, whether it be Azathoth or whatever it is. Once you've kind of experienced it, unless you're shown it in a different way Mm. your brain just sort of registers and says oh yeah, I I know that, I've felt that, I've got that I've got that, you know, don't keep telling me about Azathoth, I've got that but I think it's almost like you've got to do the personal journey each time so in the game there's got to be a journey and usually that means you start off as a regular person in the regular world, which is what Lovecraft talked about, you know, in his stories of having a, a very rational normal basis at the start and then exploring and revealing these horrors as you go through, and and the reader goes through them with the protagonist of the story. I think it's the same in the game. You know, you start off as a regular person. That's one of the appeals of Call of Cthulhu. And then these revelations are revealed to you, or you discover them during play. Yeah, if it's the same revelations again and again, well, it's not a revelation, is it? You can only be a revelation once.
1: Yeah, it's more than that, because it's got to work really on two levels. Because what you're talking about there is fine. You're playing an ordinary person who doesn't know anything about the mythos. You're going into all these revelations, having your sanity blasted. That's cool. But at the same time, you've got the players who are sitting around the table experiencing this. And sure, you've got a set of mechanics, the sanity mechanics that allow you to model this sanity blasting experience. But if my character loses a D-100 San for seeing Yog sothoth then, yeah, I can roleplay that, I can perhaps get into it at the table and so on. But it's not going to instill a sense of the cosmic or of awe in me as a player because I've read that stat block, I've seen it too many times. I think there is perhaps... I don't want to go so far as to say a mistake, but there is a flaw at the heart of the Cthulhu mythos and Lovecraft's creation, that I think at times undermines what it is that Lovecraft tried to do, which is he gave everything names, he gave them descriptions, these gods, these cosmic entities. Not as bad as some writers that came after him, who gave them personalities and human traits and so on. He still kept them fairly alien. But at the same time, at some stage, it starts feeling like... A conventional mythology it feels safe it feels we can build up a taxonomy it, it feels by the time you've gone through the details of enough mythos deities it,
0: it becomes stamp collecting i think most of that comes post lovecraft though doesn't it lovecraft does a bit of that lovecraft did do it himself
1: i refer you back to the five or six or seven descriptions of azathoth's court in the dream quest of unknown Kadath*. Hmm. he is actively working against his professed goal of his fiction
2: if anything i think he maybe took a bit too much of an inspiration from dunzany looking at the gods of pagana that even though he didn't do it in one place that he did build up this pantheon and that there are then links between them and different creatures and their part in the history of the universe or even just the history of the Earth on a small scale, that that is all scattered throughout his work. But when you put it all together, then, yes, you can see that there is at least a pattern, even if he didn't mean nor intend there to be one in the first place. And I don't feel like Lovecraft had a
0: singular goal. I think some of his stories Mm -hmm. work on, like we said, those threads kind of woven together. So it's not necessarily that he's totally focusing on invoking that sense of cosmic horror in that particular story, you know? I'm not sure. It's a while since I've read
2: that one.
1: But, I mean, it's not just in there.
2: I kind of guess when he did it in Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, that it would be a case of foreshadowing, that he's mentioned, oh, there's this horrible thing out there, so that it doesn't just suddenly come out of the blue at the end, that it makes the end maybe have a bit more impact, that it's not, what the hell is this thing coming out of left field, that he had actually signposted it and giving some warning to it?
1: There, I think... Too often in Lovecraft isn't as much of a sense of mystery. There isn't as much of a sense of the unknown as he wants to try to convince us there is.
2: Well, especially when there's some instances where, as we've discussed before, it's we know what's coming, Howie. We know that it's going to be his writing on those scrolls. Mm. We know it's going to be his own reflection in the mirror. We know this is what's coming, but why the hell don't you come out and say? But even so, it's still a nice build-up to it, and it's all about the atmosphere that it evokes getting to that point. What about the uh, music of Eric Zahn? I would Mm -hmm.
0: say that short story, and again, I think it's one we covered on a previous episode, evokes the feeling of cosmic horror. You know, you've got this crazed viol player who's uh, playing madly in his room, and one interpretation is outside his bedroom window. The protagonist of the story goes in, and I think he sees the void outside the window, and, and Eric Zahn is trying to sort of placate this, whatever it is, this cosmic horror outside his window. And that's not really explained, but we do get that sense of something unknowable out there. We're
1: even inferring that he's placating it. I mean, even that's not stated. Mm. It is a logical inference, but it is still an inference. And yeah, I, I agree. I think that's one of his more successful ones. I think too often what he does in his other stories is shows us what's behind that curtain and gives it names.
0: I think perhaps what we're identifying is how bloody difficult cosmic horror is absolutely absolutely it's very easy to strive for it it's like trying to scale the icy mountain you're trying to scale it but then you slide down you end up with something good but maybe not the pinnacle of cosmic horror because that's such a deep kind of emotional thing whereas if you're just doing a monster well it's a gribbly monster you know Mm. we see loads of those in on horror films and so on zombies and whatnot they're pretty easy because it relies on other types of horror that we've talked about in the show previously we did an episode about body horror things like that those things are relatively easy i think Mm. perhaps what we're finding is cosmic horror is the real challenge absolutely is that
1: yeah yeah would you agree i'd say after the different types of horror we've talked about it is by far the most difficult to pull off
0: because most examples that i went through in my preparation I sort of think, oh, yeah, it's kind of cosmic horror, or, yeah, it does that. Oh, actually, no, it's just monsters, or... So for us to have that sense of cosmic horror, does it have to take place
1: in a completely meaningless universe? Because that's something that Lovecraft very much talked about. In fact, when he was trying to define this for himself, he made a reference to... All my tales are based on the fundamental premise that common human laws and emotions have no validity or significance in the cosmos at large.
2: I don't think they have to be meaningless, but I think they have to have just a meaning we can't comprehend. There's the difference between whether it's not there or we just don't grasp it. Mm. I like to go to that side of the debate where it says, no, we're just too insignificant, we are just too incapable of understanding something so vast and so huge outside of our context of perception. It'd be like a Commodore 64, going back to community analogies, trying to handle a very complicated desktop publishing program that's built for a modern PC. It doesn't have the processing power. It doesn't have the hardware to do it. And I think that's what the human brain is when confronted with something as big as the universe.
0: Hmm.
1: Yeah, I sometimes think that it can be scarier if there is meaning or if there is purpose behind some of it. And this is a revelation I had last year while reading a novel called The Cabinet at the End of the World by Paul Tremblay which, I mean, is a really creepy and upsetting book. It's a very simple book to do with a religious cult who believe that they're trying to prevent the apocalypse or an apocalypse from what appears to be very much an Old Testament God. This isn't a cosmic horror this is very much Yahweh I'd guess, I mean, even though it's never named as such but they are having to do horrible things on a human scale in order to placate this capricious god and prevent him from doing horrible things to humanity as a whole. And it did make me think how much of the Old Testament can be viewed as cosmic horror, that you do have this all-powerful, ineffable deity who... You know, makes demands of humanity that we don't necessarily understand, makes what seem to be sometimes completely arbitrary laws, is willing to wipe us out to just at the flick of a wrist, torment us, torture us for purposes we will never understand. And I don't know, I mean, compared to that, the idea that the universe is empty and meaningless seems oddly comforting.
0: Yeah, I would agree, I don't know if I feel like that's cosmic horror because the God figure in there is kind of personified.
1: I'd argue that he's not. There are attempts in the Old Testament to personify God. But in Judaism and in Christianity, I'd say that God is ineffable. His ways are a mystery to us, that his purposes are a mystery. And that, yeah, this is something vast on a scale that dwarfs even Lovecraftian horrors that we can never understand and holds our very existence in the palm of its hand. And gives us the definition
0: of awe, right? Exactly, yeah.
1: I'd say that... That kind of religious awe is built out of a sense of cosmic horror. I'm not a scholar on these things, but it's not beyond believability that the kinds of attempts to bring meaning and purpose and understand catastrophes and wars and vast events and pain and human evil have led us to create these gods for ourselves in a way that in a Lovecraftian universe we might look at these cosmic forces And try to give them names, try to give them purposes, even though they are themselves beyond our comprehension. That, to me, also explains why you get mythos cults, because people are drawn to worship that which is greater than themselves. It doesn't seem to be that different to me.
0: Yeah, and I guess if you look at it that way, then religion has been a way of people coming to terms with the cosmic horror, perhaps, Mm -hmm. that they felt it's a way of putting a story on that sense of cosmic horror that actually it's not so bad because there's this entity that's going to look after us if we do the right thing if we follow this god's commandments whatever they might be then we'll go to heaven or you know we'll be looked upon kindly or you know we'll whatever that that religion says so it's almost a coping mechanism Mm. for cosmic horror perhaps is that an argument and and in that way cosmic horror has been turned into a, a comfort for people. Yeah. It's kind of been tamed, almost. I think there's a related
1: argument, which is that sometimes there's comfort in nihilism, in that if nothing has any meaning, nothing is important, then the bad things in life aren't important. So if you look at cosmic horror in the same kind of way, then... There is human pain, there is suffering, there are all the problems that we go through in our lives, all the worries that we have, all the anxieties we have. On a cosmic scale, though, none of it fucking matters. Mm
2: -hmm. I was thinking exactly the same thing. Sometimes I've found myself outside on the rare instance where it's not a rainy, overcast, miserable day or night in the UK, which seems to be most of the year here. And looking up on those rare instances where you can see the stars and think, We are so insignificant. Me worrying about, oh, I've got bills to pay, I've got these deadlines looming, doesn't mean a fucking thing. And Mm. it can actually be quite relieving because it does put things in perspective. It's just, yeah, get on, do what you do, doesn't matter. So so insignificant.
1: We'll all be dead soon.
2: Yeah, I wish I could tell the bank that, but uh, they don't want to listen to my uh, (laughs) philosophical rhetoric. So
0: can we have your liver then?
2: (laughs) I'm I'm rather attached to it, that's the problem. (laughs)
0: So shall we move on to what are our favourite works of cosmic horror? I've named Eric Zahn as one of mine. I'd say that definitely hits it for me. A lot of the others are like, yeah, arguable. That one, I think, nails it. I think that's that's definitely one to bottom on the board. Let's uh, have a few
2: others that definitely nail it. Thinking of Lovecraft, I tried to kind of broaden my horizons and think what other stories have I read that could fit into this category. Just purely looking at Lovecraft, I think *The Tep* is one for me just because of the imagery that it evokes in that final montage of talking about cities that Mm. are sores on the surfaces of dead worlds, that the universe crumbles to dust and that there's just the sound of drums, pipes echoing from the centre of existence. That kind of image really played into me thinking this is definitely horrific on a cosmic level. As I mentioned previously, the story that I ultimately settled on is probably my favourite. In most instances, is classified as a sci-fi story, but it's really only the very, very, very last scene or the very last couple of paragraphs that hammer home that particular moment. And it's The Nine Billion Names of God by Arthur C. Clarke. Oh, yes. For those that don't know the story, it's a very short story. You can listen to it on an audiobook in about 20 minutes or less. It's about a religious group. I think it's normally placed in Tibet or the Himalayas. That They're very much like a, a Buddhist monastery or um, a Lama Street, it's referred to in the story that they are trying to compile all the different names of God using a custom alphabet that they've created. But to write all these names down would take like 15,000 years. So in the modern era, they finally get hold of a computer and they print it off. And it's as the technicians who are manning the computer decide, well, we'd better get out of here before time runs out and they realise that their little prophecy that when all the names of God are written down, the universe will end. We don't want to be around when they suddenly realise that that's not what's going to happen. So they tinker, they basically get a premise where they can get out and head to the airports or the airstrip before it finishes its countdown. But they're just going down the hill surrounded by these huge mountains, which Clark describes almost as these ghostly robed figures that even dwarf them, which again gives a little aspect of scale. But then it's when that clock runs out that it's this wonderful and again going back to that word awe-struck or awe-inspiring image of without any fuss the stars above were going out one by one and Mm. that image has stuck in my mind since I was a kid when I read that because I went holy shit that is that's terrifying but awe-inspiring at the same time
0: oh very
1: good yeah yeah I love that story I'm, I'm not normally a huge fan of Arthur C. Clarke but yeah that story really resonated with me
0: and what about you Scott what would you pick if I had to
1: pick one story or one book this came to me fairly late as i was coming through my list and then i sort of slapped my forehead for not thinking of it sooner that really sums up the problems of dealing with the ineffable of trying to make sense of something beyond human comprehension it would be solaris by
2: M. i was close i was going to say you were going to go a roadside picnic that is on my list as well
1: but solaris It's been filmed twice uh, to various degrees of success. The American one, I thought it was an okay film, but I thought it missed the point of the book entirely. And even the Russian one, the Russian one is very atmospheric and spooky and has got some great moments in it, but doesn't cover the bit of the book that I think is most pertinent to this discussion. The idea of Solaris is there is this alien world, Solaris, which is possibly sentient, That there is this superhuman intelligence that exists on the planet, but humans have never been able to find a way to communicate with it, but we're certain it's there and it evidences in certain ways, right down to inducing hallucinations and having people believe that they're talking to dead loved ones and stuff like that. But there have been endless streams of academics just throwing themselves at this over decades, going in sort of writing the most detailed papers about the ebbs and flows of the clouds on the surface and stuff like this and looking for clues and that and trying to come up with ways of communicating with it and just understanding its chemical makeup and every possible discipline throwing themselves at it and just bouncing off, that it is genuinely ineffable and this driving people to madness and despair, that to me is cosmic horror, that this is, in the end, something that is just so genuinely alien beyond our capability to understand that even the most rigorous scientific and philosophical approaches to it are reduced to being little
0: more than theology. Mm. Yeah, I mean... It seemed isolated to that planet though, right? Yes. This is kind of almost like an alien race on that planet. Well, it's not even an alien race, it is the planet itself. But it seems to manifest as an alien race in the clouds and so on, as I recall. Oh, not as a race, no. They consider it to be a single entity. Oh, a single entity. Okay, I misremember it. What you just described put me in mind, they said it's a long time since I read Solaris, it put me in mind a bit of a rival, you know, like mm. an alien race seemingly difficult to communicate with and to comprehend.
1: But I suppose the difference is in Stories of Your Life and the film Arrival that they succeed in the communication. That, you know, it has consequences. It Mm. reshapes the people who make that communication, but they succeed. In Solaris, I don't think anyone's ever going to succeed because it's just too alien. Yeah. How about you, Paul?
0: Well, actually, if I were to pick one, this is a bit of a schlock horror one and one we have looked at before, but I felt. There's a kernel of it that hits Cosmic Horror for me. And like I said, Eric Zahn kind of hits the whole thing 100%. I think most other examples I could think of, I'm going to sort of say this bit Mm. works as Cosmic Horror. And that'd be Event Horizon. Okay. When they activate the drive and it sends the previous... Am I remembering correctly? It sends the previous crew into like another dimension... Mm The original crew, yeah. Where they go mad and they're talking in Latin and so on, the original crew. It's like, where did they go? Mm -hmm. That gives me that sense of sort of cosmic horror that if you activate this drive, this thing that allowed them to travel across the universe in short time, then it sent them somewhere else, kind of a hell-like dimension. Around the M25. Yes. (laughs) So I kind of got that feeling from that. And also that's definitely horror. I think cosmic horror it can be that combination of science fiction and horror. It mm. doesn't have to be, but that is a, a good route to it, I think. And like you said, Matt, about the Arthur Clark, Clarke, I think another one on my list was 2001, the Kubrick film, yeah. when, towards the end, when Bowman is travelling through space, he's been drawn across towards the final destination, and there's all that weird special effects and so on, and the music... Yeah, it's just like you get that sense of what the hell is going on Mm -hmm. and uh, of a sort of cosmic dread, Mm -hmm. I think. That's quite affecting.
2: What the hell drugs did he take when he came up with that scene? I know. I did have a bit of trouble trying to pin down, again, what I was thinking would be definitions of cosmic horror. And that was the main two that came to mind for me were, say, Niathletepe and the the Nine Billion Names of God. Anything else I looked at, I was thinking, yeah, you could just slip this into monster horror or this is more gothic or this is more sci-fi. But pretty much what Paul said, I think it's elements within those stories that it's those key moments and those visuals that come to mind are really what make it cosmic horror for me. Yeah, it's a bit like a spice in the meal. It's
0: not the meal itself. It's like there's that bit. all oh, that really adds a lot to it. But you could have the meal without that bit.
1: But I don't think that something being science fiction precludes it from being cosmic horror there was another story that sprang to mind for me, which isn't really a horror story by any means, but I think encapsulates a lot of what I love about cosmic horror. And that's the 1943 story Mimsy with the Borough Groves. Oh, yeah. It was written under the name Lewis Padgett, but it was by Henry Kuttner and C.O. Moore uh, who wrote it under that pseudonym. Henry Cutner being one of the Lovecraft Circle. In fact, they both were. The basic premise of that, I mean, it's like 30 years since I've read it, so I'll misremember bits of it, is that there are these educational toys that have been created by this transhuman society in the far, far future that somehow have been sent back in time to the then present day of the 1940s and have ended up in the hands of some ordinary kids who are then learning from them. And the things that they're learning about space and time from these toys are transforming the way they think in the way that their parents just plain don't understand. That these kids are starting to develop a view of space-time time that allows them to transcend the restrictions of three-dimensional space that we live in. I mean, it's obviously terrifying the parents and ultimately leads to the kids just disappearing. They just walk out through a corner that isn't there and are never seen again. That, to me tapped into that sense of cosmic horror that feeling that we don't know what the rules are that the universe isn't what we think it is that our perceptions are gravely limited and that when we butt up against this and see things that transcend it that it's terrifying
2: i haven't read the story but i have seen the film that was based on it and that very much to sanitize it a lot (laughs) yeah (laughs)
1: There was a film called The Last Mimsy, which did that classic thing of let's take this really scary, disturbing story and make it safe and kid friendly, which I think is actually a very common reaction to horror and cosmic horror in particular. I think it's why things like Plush Cthulhu's are so popular. When we encounter ideas that are dangerous to us, that frighten us, we find ways of making them safe. And this can be through infantilizing them, this can be through mocking them, this can be just through sheer taxonomy, just trying to understand them and render them safe. I think that's an important thing for us to learn with Cosmic Horror if we're presenting it. Understand the things that stop it being scary, the defences that we put up in order to defang it, and find ways of neutralising those.
0: Well, let's wrap up the discussion with some ideas about how we might use cosmic horror in our games. So we're about Call of Cthulhu, we're about horror gaming, we've talked about cosmic horror. How do we combine the two effectively? What can I do as a
2: keeper to put cosmic horror in my game? The best way I've tried to do it before, and I think I've I've tried a couple of times in games, is where you have a situation that happens where it's just it's something happens, that it's not driven Mm. by agenda, that it's not driven by any malicious goal, it's not part of some moustache-twirling master plan, it's just something ineffable, something of a almost force of nature that happens and the PCs find themselves stuck in the middle of it and it's how they deal with it forms that part of the story and going back to what Scott mentioned about that it's their reaction to what happens really brings out that cosmic element because I think putting a human face to it or having that agenda having that plot that structure kind of takes away from the whole aspect of it being cosmic horror that it's got to be something like the PCs meeting a force of nature and then just finding themselves so insignificant in its path. Hmm.
1: What about you, Scott? There are certain tricks that we've talked about in the past, like not naming things. As I've said multiple times through this episode, over-explaining stuff is the death of cosmic horror. So resist that temptation. Building up what Matt was just saying there, putting these expressions or these intrusions of the outside into games is very effective. What I think you've got to be quite careful of is that really fine balancing act where you're trying not to over-explain things, try to avoid the word because, trying to avoid making it predictable and uh, safe, but at the same time just stop it being a load of random shit because that at the same time isn't scary. And I think the trick to that is... To make it thematic. Maybe it is just one event and you're looking at the aftershocks. You see something like the leftovers, which I've raved about before. You had this great disappearance of 2% of the population, and it's about people trying to find meaning in that. But I think there are other great examples. There was a story I read by Tanith Lee. Years back, called Black and White Sky. It's just a really weird story. The premise to it is that in the UK, it might even be just in England, but certainly just in the UK and nowhere else in the world, this just impossible thing that has happened where all of a sudden these blackbirds are just appearing from the ground, flying up into the sky and just disappearing over and over again, all over the landscape, just. Everywhere you look, there is just this constant stream of black birds just being born from the ground and going up. It's not really doing anything. I mean, it interferes with air travel and so on, but it's not really doing anything. But at the same time, it freaks people out. So much so that the UK is completely isolated and it's just this impossible thing that's happening. And just faced with the impossible, what does humanity do? And the answer is very much fall apart. I think another great example is Junji Ito's comic Uzumaki, which was made into a mediocre film. But the comic explores the themes much more, which you just have this town where all of a sudden everything just starts getting shaped by spirals. Spirals come in, start just transforming people, transforming places, transforming space-time in all sorts of weird and horrific ways. What Ito does there, which I think works really well from a gaming perspective, is he takes that theme of the spiral, and Tanith Lee takes that theme of the blackbirds rising from the sky, brings it in, uses it to create this sense of the unknown and the unknowable. Then, yeah, it is, as you said before, Matt, dealing with the repercussions. It is... What do you do in the face of the impossible? And I think that is probably the best way in a game of bringing about that sense of cosmic horror. Either that, or you just throw big tentacle monsters at them. It's all the same.
2: <laughs> well first one, then the other. Get, keep a bit of variety. How about you, Paul? To some
0: degree, you know, it comes into the design of the scenario, like you said, with the themes that you incorporate. Some scenarios have a kind of a, an inbuilt twist or revelation or something within the story itself. And it depends on how that's delivered and brought through in the game. And I think as Keeper, try and evoke that feeling of cosmic horror in yourself and sort of think, well, how does that feel? And how can that be communicated in the game? How can I kind of cultivate that through what I describe in the game? There's a similar thing with any form of horror, really, Mm. trying to evoke that, that feeling. It's something you can consider and discuss, but I think it's very much reactive, and in the moment of the game, and having a sensitivity to that, both as a player and a keeper.
2: Thank you.
0: You're listening to the good friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com, where you'll also find all our social media presences. We have t-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash of Jackson Elias. Thank you for listening.
1: Well, once again, we have gathered here to say thank you. Thank you very much to you, first of all, for listening to this episode and other episodes, we hope. And thank you very much to anyone who has ever backed us at any stage. And we have a number of new people to thank in mysterious ways. Well, no, just really by using their names, which, as we said, is the opposite of mysterious. But we're going to thank you anyway.
0: And as always, just let me start off by saying we do our best with pronunciation. But if we do mess your name up, then please do let us know. And we'll have another shot at it. And I'd like to start off by giving a big thanks to Laurie Kudzdal. And thank you much also to Sarah D. And thank you to Tyler Carty. And thanks to Greg Osborne. And thank you much to Brownie Davis. And thank you to Katsper Nazajevsky And thanks very much to
1: Quinton Laurie. And just to reiterate what Paul said, if we have screwed any of these up,
0: do get in contact and we will do it again. But that wraps up our episode on cosmic horror. It's been a long time coming because it's kind of core to Lovecraft and so many things that we talk about, I feel.
1: And we've had it on our episode list for something like five years, I
0: think. <laughs> Yeah, we've been uh, intimidated by the horror of it. What's five
2: years in the grand scheme of the universe, eh?
0: (laughs) That's no time at all. And it will be no
1: time at all until we've got our next episode out in a fortnight, where we will continue the theme by talking about possibly one of the first cosmic horror stories to be written, The Willows by Alton and Blackwood. But until then, it's a goodbye from me.
2: Cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. And crawling on the planet's face, some insects called the human race.
1: Lost in time
0: and lost in space and meaning. Me.